All right, great to see you this morning. Hope you had a terrific Christmas, enjoyed time with family and friends, and able to just enjoy what this time of year means to us. Let me ask you this question. After Christmas was over, what did you do the rest of the week? So probably a lot of us went back to work. Uh, probably a lot of us ate too much. Um, maybe it had to take back that sweater that didn't fit. Some of us watched some pretty sad football. Right after the first Christmas, the Gospel of Luke continues. It tells us what happened immediately after Jesus' birth and, the, and what was to follow after that. In fact, Luke tells us some things no other Gospel tells us. And there's really no other source that tells us these things. It's just the Gospel of Luke. There is one story in, the, in Matthew that we don't have in Luke. That is when Joseph took the family and headed to Egypt because of Herod's murderous plot. Uh, but other than that, these stories, there's no other resource. Now we do know there's a false book out there. It's called The Infancy Gospel of Thomas. And it just does some crazy things. It tells us stories like, you may have heard of the one where Jesus was supposed to be a young boy and he was lonely, nobody to play with. And so he took some clay and he formed it into the shape of a bird and then he made it alive so he could play with the bird. You know, just fanciful stories like that. And then some awful stories in that gospel. Some awful stories that uh, about Jesus supposedly um, playing with some water one day and another boy came and sort of messed it up and he killed the boy. Or the boy that pushed him accidentally killed him. Or the teacher that was punishing Jesus killed the teacher. Like, this is just terrible stuff. We know this, guy, this, again, supposedly called gospel was not really anything true about it. It was written in the late second century. Thomas had been dead for over 100 years. So it wasn't written by Thomas. We know that the early church, because it wasn't written by Thomas and because of the things that, was, that it taught, rejected it immediately. So this is a book that just tells us a bunch of false stories. So the only true source we have of anything that happened during Jesus' childhood was from the Gospel of Luke and then that one story out of Matthew. But right away, when we look into Luke, what we see makes us thankful for the Jesus we know. Because right from the beginning, you'll notice something. You notice that every single detail is consistent with who he is and what he was here for. So we're continuing in Luke 2, picking up where we left off last week, right after the Christmas story, verse 21. It says, and when eight days had been passed, before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, was completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. And as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. 
and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So you read through that, you get, immediately you get this picture. You notice how many times the law is mentioned. And I think it's important for us. You see that point in everything that happens here. The law, it's fulfilling the law. The, the law was followed. That's the point I think that initially we want to notice because the fact that in Jesus' life, the law was always followed. It's significant for us. It's huge for us. Because years later, when he's offered on the cross, he had to be offered as a perfect sacrifice. And so from the very beginning of his life, even before Jesus is the one making the decisions, the law was followed. And first you see that in the issue of circumcision. Circumcision was actually pre-Mosaic law. Because back in Genesis 17, you had God making the covenant with Abraham. And circumcision was the sign of that covenant. God didn't need that covenant, did he? God was absolutely perfect as he was. He didn't need a covenant. Who needed a covenant was man. We are desperate. We need a relationship with God. The covenant was a way for that to happen. And so it's almost undescribable, unimaginable here that the Son of God would identify with sinful people through this act. I mean, why would he do that? He wasn't sinful, he never sinned, so why? You know, out of the goodness of God, the covenant was offered, but it's out of the sinfulness of man that we needed the covenant. And now Jesus, as a man, goes through this, why? Well, partially because of what it says, I think, in Hebrews 2, where we're told, therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. See, he had to identify with us. He had to be made like us. And so the sinless son of God goes through this. Why? For us. Mary and Joseph also dealt with the issue of purification. Again, according to the law. According to the law. After the birth of a boy, a mother was considered unclean after the circumcision for 33 more days. And so after 33 more days, then the mom could come, she was considered clean and she could enter the temple again. Luke doesn't mention it, but entering the temple again means that Mary and Joseph had to pay a, a, a fee through what, was, what were called sanctuary shekels. These shekels were different in value than a regular shekel. And I, I couldn't confirm this anywhere, but I, I saw where one scholar said that the approximate value of a sanctuary shekel was equal to $557 today. Wow, suddenly they gotta come up with a good chunk of money. If they had to pay five of those, that's $2,785. And we know that Mary and Joseph were not wealthy people. They, and they had the expense of travel and staying in Bethlehem for an extended period of time. It would have been a significant price for them to pay. And then on top of that, they came and they brought an offering. Again, according to the law, the normal sacrifice would have been a year old lamb. But if you couldn't afford a lamb, then you brought a pair of pigeons or turtle doves. And that's what they did because they're not wealthy. 
Well, what we're seeing here all along the way are the requirements of the law being met. Every single detail was covered. In fact, so much so that down in verse 39, we'll get there in just a little bit, but in verse 39 it says, they performed everything according to the law. Again, we're thankful for that, right? It's, it's so important to us that a perfect sacrifice was made for us. The law was followed. And what happened next we see is the promise was fulfilled. We're introduced to two people, a man and a woman, both who were waiting to see the Messiah. In verse 25, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the Lord and the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, now Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light or revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to, to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end of that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, she was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who are looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. So we've got these two people. First up was Simeon. He's described as righteous and devout. Now, unlike what a lot of people think, righteousness is not about being a good person, right? It's, uh, it's that crediting of righteousness that God gives to us because of belief. You think back to Abraham, the book of Romans tells us he was declared righteous, he was justified. Why? Because of faith. And being righteous has always been because of faith, not because of actions we do, but because of faith. Simeon is a man who had believed and he was devout, which has to do with being careful to obey. He's very careful about his life. And he's being led by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, we're told, was upon him. That's the way the Holy Spirit worked in the Old Testament, where he was present in power and person with believers. But under the new covenant, well, what we experience when we come to, to God through faith is he is present in believers. At this point, the Holy Spirit, in Luke 2, he's, the Holy Spirit's still operating like in the Old Testament. And Simeon is being led by the Spirit. We're not really told his age, but because it talks about his death, like it's impending, we assume that he's an older man. 
So here's this old man that's been promised he's going to see the Messiah. The consolation of Israel is called here. The comfort, the encouragement, the hope of Israel. That messianic hope that they had had. And because of that promise, Simeon must have been living every day so excited. I mean, this could be the day. Probably living a little bit like a kid at Christmas, you know? That total expectancy. Maybe more like what we should be living regarding the second coming, Christ. Waiting with joyous expectation for that to happen. He'd been waiting maybe for years. And day by day, probably looking at every baby that came by. Because this is the one. This is the one. Then on this day, it happened. It was clear the Spirit of God impressing on his heart. This is the baby. This is the one. And he takes the baby in his arms. Don't know how that happened. You know, if you're Mary and some old guy comes up to you and says, this may be a little bit weird, but could I hold your baby? You know, Mary been a little, been a little bit hesitant, but she hold, hands the baby over to him. And he takes this baby and he begins to pray. He's probably feeling a lot of emotion at that point, because if he was older, then he had lived most of his life under Roman occupation. And here's the consolation of Israel. He says, now Lord, I've seen your salvation and now I'm ready to die. My eyes have seen your salvation, I'm satisfied. Which tells us salvation is not something you do, it's someone you know. And all of us have to come to a conclusion on where we're at with him. Do we know him? And in his prayer, Simeon points out, this Messiah, he's not just for the Jews, as, as great as that is, he's also the light of revelation to the Gentiles, which again, it's big for us, right? Because probably all of us, or most of us, probably all of us feel, fall into that category. We're Gentiles, and he's a light to the Gentiles to bring light to the darkness of their lives. Would have shocked the Jewish people that were standing around there. I mean, they're, they're at the temple. They're the apex of Judaism. And they assumed the Messiah was gonna come, establish his kingdom, he'd rule over these pagan Gentiles. But Jesus came to be the savior of the world. We're told his father and mother were amazed. And by the way, don't let the fact that Joseph is called his father here throw you. This isn't a challenge to the truth of the virgin birth. It's just that Joseph is doing everything an earthly father would do. He's stepping up and taking care of his wife and child like any real man would do. And now here are Joseph and Mary, and they're amazed. Must have been so excited at this point. Don't you think? I mean, listen to what they're saying about our son. But then Simeon turns a corner, and he gives some information that 
probably brought them back down to earth a little bit. He tells them that Jesus is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel. He's going to be the determiner of people's destiny. And he's gonna be opposed. Not everyone's going to like him. He's gonna be loved by some, he's gonna be hated by others. Happened back then, still happens today, right? You bring up Jesus' name today and see what happens. You know, just normal conversation, all of a sudden Jesus, people become very uncomfortable quickly. But there's even more bad news. We get this foreshadowing of the cross. As, as Mary stands there listening to Simeon, he tells her, a sword will pierce your own soul. Uh, sounds pretty ominous, and it is. He used the term for a double-edged, broad, double-edged sword. And so here's Mary probably thinking, man, that's sort of graphic. <laughs> this is supposed to be a happy day. This is a day of celebrating. What are you talking about? Sword's gonna pierce my soul. No doubt, though, she remembered that statement years later as she stood at the foot of the cross and experienced that piercing in a very real way. Well, while Simeon was talking, there's a second person nearby, a lady named Anna. We're not told about Anna's character like we were Simeon's. We're told instead what she did. She was a prophetess. Doesn't mean she was predicting the future. It means she was someone God used to speak his word. And unlike Simeon who came to the temple, she was there serving night and day with fastings and prayers. I mean, this is one consistent lady. She's constantly serving. And we, and we do know with Anna, she was older because while Luke didn't tell us the man's age, he does tell us the woman's age. Which, which if I didn't know he was being led by the Spirit of God to write this, I'd question Luke's wisdom in that. But we're told she was a widow to the age of 84. And that could be taken a couple of different ways. It could be talking about her total age, that she was 84 years old, or it could be talking about how long she's been a widow. And if it's how long she's been a widow, that would make her over 100 at this time. Either way, she's getting older. So probably both Simeon and Anna are older, older folks that have lived faithfully, trusting God. Older people like that who reflect the joy and the peace of having lived their lives for him People like that, they're treasures for the church. Still today. It's priceless. Old cranky people, not so much. <laughs> but people who have grown to love him more through the years, there's so much we can and should learn from them. And these two have been looking for, waiting for the Messiah. 
and she hears what Simeon is saying about who Jesus is and she starts celebrating because she also has been waiting, waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And now the promise of the Messiah is fulfilled right in front of them. Verse 39 again, they've done everything according to law. They've met every requirement, every single detail. The law was fulfilled, was followed. The promise was fulfilled. And then we see his life was focused. Verse 40, the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. People ask, well, how, how is it that Jesus could grow in wisdom? You know, he's God, how's he growing in wisdom? Well, he grew in wisdom the same way he grew physically in strength and in height. Jesus, although God had limited the use of some of his divine attributes, and that's why the one who is all powerful could become tired. That's why the one who knew all could grow in wisdom. So he could identify with us. See, most, much of his life is pretty normal. And we hear nothing else about Jesus for the next 12 years until they're going up to the temple at Passover at 12. We know Jewish males were required by law to appear in Jerusalem for three major Jewish feasts. Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. So the men would all come, and also a lot of women and children came, and it was big. Fathers were required to teach their, their sons the law by age 12, so very appropriate for Jesus to be there. Because the next year, at 13, they'd have their bar mitzvah, they'd enter into manhood. In preparation for that, they'd come and they'd go to the temple. And that's what we see in verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents were unaware of it but supposed him to be in the caravan. And when a day's journey, and they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. So Mary and Joseph took their family. They traveled to Jerusalem. They traveled by caravan. They observed the Passover. And then they started to head back home. Well, all the hustle and bustle of the crowd, hundreds of thousands of people, sacrifices and celebrations. It was, came the time to head home. And Mary and Joseph were thinking that Jesus is somewhere with the caravan. You ever lose track of one of your kids? Come, I'm not the only one, come on. <laughs> we, we, uh, 
I, I remember um, when our kids were small, in fact, Luke wasn't born yet. We had the three girls, had Christy, Kaylee, and Carrie. And I was out mowing the lawn one day and I knew the plan was Becky was gonna go to the grocery store that morning. And uh, as I'm mowing, I look up, I see her come out of the house, head for the car. I see Christy, I see Kaylee, and I think I just assumed that she had Carrie. And she got in, in the car and she took off for the grocery store. And I think she assumed that I knew that Carrie was in the house, in her crib. I didn't know that. So I ran out of gas. And I threw the gas can in the back of the truck and I headed for the gas station. I'm filling the gas can up when all of a sudden it hits me. Wait a second. I saw Christy, I saw Kaylee. Where was Carrie? Oh no. And, and I jumped back in the truck. I set a new land speed record. I, I pulled into the driveway, I jumped out of the truck, I run inside, Carrie is in her crib, she's standing there, you know when babies get really mad? She's standing there screaming, there's stuff all over you. I felt so bad. It can happen. Mary and Joseph lose track. Especially easy because the people in the caravans, as they travel together, they function sort of as a quasi-family. They just all sort of integrated. They're watching out for each other's kids. But eventually, Joseph and Mary, they're like, wait a second, I haven't seen Jesus for a while here. What's going on? And they start searching everywhere. And then they start to panic. They, he, he's not in the caravan. So they turn, they go back to Jerusalem. And they're in Jerusalem and they're searching for him everywhere. They're, you know, they're looking at all the shops, they're looking at the playground, they're just looking for Jesus everywhere. Finally, they find him. Three days, a day out, a day back, and a day of searching, they finally find him there in the temple. Sitting. Listening to the teachers. It's common during the Passover for the Sanhedrin to be in the temple Training young men. And there's Jesus. No ordinary student. He's listening to them and he's asking questions, a normal way of teaching, but he's asking questions that are penetrating, that are insightful, that are profound, and they're blown away by what he knows. How does he know this much? People look at this passage and some say, well, this is easy. Well, he's God. That's how he knows all this. Others go, well, wait a second, but he's growing in wisdom. Again, how does that all work? The whole God and man thing, how does that work? You know, it's what theologians call the hypostatic union. How does it work? He's 100% God, he's 100% man. And honestly, we, we don't know completely how to explain that. And I love that. I love that there are some mysteries in our faith that are beyond us. You know, our faith is very logical. There's a lot of evidence. We can go, you know, we do that. We talk about that a lot. There's all these things that give us good reason and good reasoning to, to follow Christ. But I love that there are some things that are beyond us. Like 
the Word of God, the Bible. We know this is God's Word, right? Every word of it is God-breathed. It's His product. But yet it was written by men. Men that we can understand, we understand their background as we read. We can understand their pers- some of their personality as we read what they've written. So how does that work? Written by men, but written by God. How do, don't fully, can't fully explain that. How does it work that God is sovereign? He makes a choice in eternity past to love and choose us. And yet we have freedom. How does a, a providential God who's in control of all things and yet we have freedom and we have, there's personal responsibility on our part. How does that work? It's beyond us. <clears throat> how is Jesus both God and man? And what happens is these type of mysteries, people it's just part of human nature, I think. They, we always try to solve them. We, we want to come up with our explanation that will make logical sense to us. And so people push and push and push to come up with something that will explain this. And so that's exactly what's happened with this truth. Back in the fifth century, a couple of heresies popped up. And as people push and push and push, they end up a lot of times in areas that are heretical. And and that's exactly what happened here. Fifth century, two heresies developed. One called the monophysites, this group, who if if you were to ask a monophysite, if you next time you run into one, it it was was Jesus divine or human? They believed that Jesus was one person and he only had one nature. So if you asked them if he's divine or human, they would say yes. <laughs> because they, they believed that his nature was blended, divine and human, sort of all mixed up. Another group, the Nestorians said, well, he, if he has two natures, he must be two people. And so he would transition, God, man, man, God, back and forth. And, and that's just people trying to deal with this mystery that we can't fully comprehend. So the church said, wait a second, <laughs> this is getting out of hand. And they, and they called some people together. It was the Council of Chalcedon. And they came up with a statement that basically just said, Jesus was one man, truly man and truly God, without mixture or confusion, without separation or division, each nature retaining its own attributes. It's a great statement. How does that work? I can't fully explain it. Just believe it, I believe that's what scripture teaches, it's what we believe. So how did Jesus know all this stuff? Don't know, could be that his divine nature let his human nature know, could be that his human nature, that. And I think probably the more logical explanation is he loved the Lord, his God, with all of his mind. And unlike us, the effects of sin that have ravaged our minds hadn't affected his because he didn't have sin. And so Jesus, without the slightest influence of sin, his thinking never clouded by sin, and every second of his life, he loved the Lord, his God, with his entire mind. 
He's thinking in a more clear way than we ever think. And he continued growing in wisdom and knowledge. And all the people were amazed. I'm told that Mary and Joseph are astonished. Probably relieved to see him, relieved to find him, but a little bugged. So Mary's like son, and she uses a word there for a younger child. It's like, she's gonna point out to him, you're not grown yet. What are you, where you been? What have you been doing? And Jesus wants to clarify things. So in verse 49, he says to them, why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? I mean, you did all this searching, didn't you? Wouldn't you have known just to come straight here? But they did not understand the statements which he had made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth. And he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. He's like, hey, had to be in my father's house. Not, and by the way, not, not wrong to translate it that way, but it literally means had to be about the things of my father. See, that's my priority. Every single detail of his life was focused on his father's will. This is the first time in scripture that anyone claimed God as his personal father. The Jews viewed God as the father of creation and the father of their nation, but no one had the audacity to claim God as his father in a personal sense. But now Jesus makes that claim, the claim that would infuriate the religious leaders because they understood perfectly that it was a claim to full equality with God, that it was a claim to deity. And Jesus makes a claim here because he's all about the mission of his father, his purpose of being here on earth in the first place, where his responsibilities lie and his priority is not to his family's interests, but to his heavenly father's interests. He's all about his father. His life is focused. We see that throughout his life. And Mary and Joseph, they don't understand what he's talking about. But he went back to Nazareth with them and he continued in subjection to them. He was obedient to them. Why? Because that was consistent with what his father had called him to do. His obedience to these earthly parents. Mary, we're told, treasured all these things in her heart. Like every mom, dad does, putting away memories. But also later helping Mary understand the greater purpose of Jesus' life when she would realize that her son was also her savior. And again, Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature in favor with God and man. And in submitting to his father's will, he grew in favor with him. Like Mary was appreciating all these memories, his heavenly father was appreciating all the things he saw in him as well. And the next time we hear from Jesus, 18 years will have gone by. He'll be grown at that point and ready to start his ministry. And that's where we'll pick it up next week. But today, what I hope we walk away from here with is that from the very first week after that first Christmas, Jesus' life, the law was followed, the promise was fulfilled 
and his life was focused. Because see, if his life was that way, and he was sent to redeem us and to keep us until the day we're in his presence, until then, whatever life brings to us, we're good. We're, we're looking at a new year. And a lot of people seem anxious about another year. Where is this world headed? Finances and health issues and morality and all the stuff that's going on. Where is this world headed? What I can tell you is this, that because of the one we serve, because the law was followed and the promise was fulfilled and because he lived a focused life, every detail of our lives now and throughout this coming year and on into eternity is in his hands. And we can rest in that. We can rest in that today. And know his peace and his comfort. Know the one who is the consolation of Israel. He's also our consolation today. We're gonna close in just a moment a song and what I wanna ask you to do if you've never trusted in Christ, would you please consider him? Would you please consider placing your faith in his hands? Because if he is what we've just talked about, then he's worth and worthy of following. And he will provide for you through every detail and circumstance of life if you will turn to him by faith. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that we can know you and can walk through life with you. And know, God, your provision for us, your provision of salvation, and know, God, that every detail of our lives is in your hands. And we're fine. We're fine because of who your son is. And we can trust him and rest in his presence in our lives and his provision for us. God, I pray for those that might be here who've never taken that step of faith, God, they take that today. And for those of us who have, God, I pray that we would just continue to trust your son. We love you. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.